Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his Republicans are telling Biden they won't raise the debt limit unless we punish poor people. They now want able-bodied recipients of Medicaid and food stamps to work for it. If they could work for it, they wouldn't need Medicaid and food stamps, you malicious, venomous bastards. The message is starve and die and no medical care. That's the message. Starve, no food stamps and, and no medical care unless you go get a job. If they would raise the minimum wage, the minimum wage is $7 and change. They haven't raised it since Teddy Kennedy was alive. You get a job, you're still poor, you idiots. By the way, people who are working in America are on Medicaid and they're in need of food stamps. We have what are called the working poor because you haven't raised the minimum wage since Ted Kennedy died which was what, 2009? We have what are called the working poor. When you go to work for Walmart, on your first day, they hand you an application for food stamps. I wish I were making that up. When you work for these big box stores, you're expected to go on food stamps, and that's how they help you, by giving you the application. You're gonna be on Medicaid if you work for Walmart. That's another way we, the taxpayers, subsidize the richest 1% and Wall Street. As I said, they can't even raise minimum wage past $7 and some change. We allow in this country corporations to pay their workers so little that they must go on Medicaid and food stamps. And one third of the debt that we currently hold was created by Donald Trump, who insisted on giving the wealthy tax cuts, which Joe Biden and the Democrats have not reversed. It's not just the Republicans' fault. This is happening because the Democrats are owned by Wall Street. Not all, not all, not Bernie, not Cori Bush. There's some good Democrats here. I don't care what your position papers are if you're running for office as a Democrat. You make a promise to me that you have no money. You got my vote. And every two years, if you're a congressman, and every six years, if you're a senator, you do your financial disclosures. And if you're still broke, if you have to live on the salary that you're paid as a congressperson or a senator, and you're able to save some of that money, and your spouse is poor and your children are poor, you have my vote. Because if you're holding elective office and you're not worrying about half the country that can't come up with $1,000 for a medical emergency, you are a piece of shit. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. If you don't wake up every morning and think about those migrant children who we need and, and the Americans who can't come up with $1,000 for a medical emergency, your life is worthless. If you're a politician in Washington, D.C., and that's not the only thing you care about, you're a piece of shit and you're worthless and you're evil. Where, where are the Jeremiah rights in this country? Where are the rabbis and the ministers? Where are the Reverend Barry W. Lins 
and the Jeremiah Wrights, who are calling these so-called religious politicians on their venality. This is pure evil. People are dying because you don't give a shit about humanity. We have to outlaw billionaires. There has to be a peaceful, legal revolution, the same way there was a Reagan revolution and a Gingrich revolution. It's done by electing the right people. It's by it's ele electing AOC and Bernie Sanders and Cory Bush and readjusting the tax laws and making certain that money flows down to us, the people who need it, not up to the union busting trolls like Jeff Bezos on his new $500 million yacht. I have a picture of him. This is Jeff Bezos on his new $500 million yacht and his phony pecs and his uh, whore, a girlfriend on that boat. And, you know, I'm looking at them on that boat. There's never an iceberg when you really need one. Why is that? You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for separation of church and state. He is a member of the Supreme Court Bar. He is a lawyer as well as an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. His latest book is Paid to Piss People Off. It's a trilogy. And tonight we're going to talk about the book entitled Protest, which is part of the trilogy. It's published by Blue Cedar Press. It has the Feldman guarantee. Go by paid to piss people off. Welcome, Reverend. Thank you. Uh, the first one is peace, although a lot of it is about protest. And then the second is porn. That's porn, which you always gravitate to. And then prayer, which rarely crosses your mind. Right. But we're going to talk about pro protesting and yes. peace and peace. protesting right. for peace. Right. And there's a picture. Your daughter's on the cover of the, the peace book. Yes. When she was three years old, she went to an anti-war rally. I actually took her on the stage with me. I was very uncomfortable with that afterwards. And I never did it again because I didn't know that she would turn out to be the delightfully progressive young woman that she is today. So one of the things one of the things baby boomers mm -hmm. like to crow about is we stopped the war in Vietnam. We took to the streets in the 60s and the yippies and the hippies and Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda. We stopped the war in Vietnam. Did the peace movement stop the war? Because when did the when did we finally pull out? Seventy four. Yeah, we 73, we 73, 73 is when there were the Paris Peace Accords, which, of course, were the same agreements that Kissinger had negotiated about eight years earlier. But he was dissatisfied at that point. I think the anti-war movement was essential to ending the war. Was it? As, yes, but it didn't do a terribly good job at it. The first people that we that were killed in Vietnam, according to William Manchester, the historian. There were two guys who were changing the film reels in a tent one night, and two of them were shot by snipers. So this was before anybody thought there even was a war in Vietnam. We thought 
there were advisors, but of course they were more than doing advice. They were part of the first wave of military operators of the United States into Vietnam. I'm trying to do the math here. I know that my father, who served in World War II, finally came around to wanting to end the war in Vietnam after Dr. King spoke at it. Once Dr. King said this war is immoral, my father was taking me to moratoriums. What is that, 65, 66? When did King speak out against the war? I, I think his first, well, intimations of it were before, but I think it was 1967 when he did that big program at Riverside Church uh, in New York City, and then the next day spoke at the United Nations. Where, and were you there? Where, yeah, I was there at the United Nations during uh, what was an incredible speech. And Dr. King um, was one of the reasons. Well, I, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about how I got involved in this in the first place. And Dr. King is very much a piece of it. But my family used to take me to Ocean City, New Jersey, one for one week. My father only had one week uh, in August and one in July off and then some time around the holidays. From the December. candy factory. Well, no, by that time he worked, he was selling uh, stone and slag, two byproducts of making steel. But um, he had been, you know, he had swept the floors in the Just Born Candy Company and he played a piano in silent movie houses during the Depression as well. But um, so he didn't get much time off. But without fail, we went to a place called the Hotel Lincoln, which was in Ocean City, New Jersey. It was kind of, uh, it turns out a lot of people do know something about Ocean City. It wasn't as built up as Atlantic City, and it wasn't as kind of wild party-ish as Wildwood, New Jersey. But it was a, a good family place. And uh, at the Hotel Lincoln, where we stayed every single year, and we ate dinner every single night. In 1962, there was an activities night there, and they played a movie. And the movie was called China Gate. It was made in 1957. It had Angie Dickinson, Gene Barry, and um, Nat King Cole, the singer. And it was about the French occupation of Vietnam. And it was it was a little too anti-French. So for many years, the movie couldn't even be shown in France. This was the first time I had ever heard of a war, of the Viet Minh at the, at the time. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. And then it was exactly one year later, in 1963, we're in the same room, we're looking at a giant television showing the debate in the Senate over the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. This, for people who may have, have forgotten, this was a completely made up uh, commentary by the Johnson administration where he claimed that a, a naval vessel of the United States had been uh, shot, shelled two, by I two, Maddox, two North, the Maddox uh, and some, another one. Maddox and uh, that it had been sh shelled right. by two uh, North Vietnamese boats, patrol boats. Even Robert McNamara, who, of course, was ma in many ways an architect of the Vietnam War, in the last book he wrote, he conceded pretty much that the thing never happened. There had never been an attack on 
naval vessels. But what the administration wanted was a, a kind of blank checks that anything could be done, any monies could be spent to stop communist aggression in Vietnam. And I remember talking to my father at the end of that, and I said, you know, uh, this is the same war they it was in that movie a year ago. And he said, he was wrong occasionally. He said, Barry, don't worry about it. It'll be over very soon. Well, it, it, of course, it wasn't. That was 1964. It was 1964. Yeah, the Gulf. Uh, yeah I, I think I said 63. But No, no, you didn't say anything. I, okay. I, I thought it was, yeah, I, my, my um, the dates are, are not as clear as the experience. And so the, so the protest movement the Gulf of Tonkin, 64, by 68, there were half a million boys, basically boys, a few girls, but mostly boys in Vietnam. And the protest movement was in full bloom by then, by 68, and the Paris peace talks were taking place. Is it fair to say that had Kissinger not jeopardized the, the Paris peace talks in 68, which we could discuss another time, right. and, and Hubert Humphrey were president, that the protest movement would have succeeded in bringing an end to the war with a President Humphrey? You know, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody does. We just speculate about these things and speculating about what's going to happen to the debt ceiling, you know, is uh, more useful in speculating about what would have happened if Hubert Humphrey had become president of the United States. What if Jack Kennedy hadn't been uh uh, hadn't been assassinated. Uh, David Halberstam, the historian, also has a lot of commentary about where he wrote in the best and the brightest his effort to talk about the Kennedy staff, uh, that they were working on him and that Kennedy was, in fact, about ready to say enough of Vietnam. Right. But some historians disagree with that. Some agree with it. It's just impossible to know. But I do know that this these this protest movement was so important to me. Um, it's it's a um, to to me. I started in high school. The only thing I did that was a kind of a clear example of protest against Vietnam, aside from being the only student in my you know, civics class that was against the war because I had started to read the wonderful writings of Bob Shear, who created uh, Ramparts magazine. And um, and then the, the band, the Liberty High School band in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, was supposed to march in a victory in Vietnam parade. So I went up to the band director and I said, I'm not going. I don't even know that we should be victorious in Vietnam. I think it's just a civil conflict. And he, to his perhaps credit, or maybe just because he was, you know, as cowardly as I thought he was, uh, it was like, okay, you don't have to go. You don't have to go. So I didn't go. And there was one fewer clarinet player at the victory. You know, I remember playing, I, I played the trumpet in the elementary school marching band. And I can remember on July 4th or Memorial Day marching with a black armband that said 50,000 on it. Yep, of course, of course. And, uh, and not everybody was, wore it. 
No, of course not. And I mean, I think I probably had I decided to wear it instead of just refusing to go to it, uh, there wouldn't have been a lot of people with black armbands there. Bethlehem was a very working class town. Uh, the Bethlehem Steel employed a huge number of people. It had not yet become a kind of megalopolis on the uh, between Philadelphia and New York. So I go to college and I do the things that people do in college. You, you go to protests, you try to organize protests in your local community, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is at the time. Uh, uh, Named after the Carlisle group, I believe. David uh, yes, it was not actually, but it was an I instead of a Y, but I'm sure oh. they had something to do with. And the Army War College was there, hmm. you know, where they teach you how to torture people. Right. And that was a big source of, of other um, other so protests. When you say well. the Army Army War College, when you, you talk about the Panamanian leaders of the Latin American generals, they would go there to learn? Well, they would go there or also to a place in Washington, D.C., another place where this kind of training went on. But the one that was really training in secret was the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And I, I remember, you remember 1970 when there were murders at Jackson State and at Kent State, there were massive uh, kind of neo-revolutionary movements on college campuses all over the United States. And I remember we had one in Carlisle and uh, we, uh, we went to the Army War College and Paul Krasner, who I became quite friendly with, the great humorist and satirist and editor of the, uh, the Realist magazine, uh, he came and gave a wonderful speech and uh, was a great, a great protest. Paul Krasner is unknown, unfortunately, to a lot of people because, as he used to tell me, he didn't get arrested in 1968 in Chicago, along with Abby right. Hoffman well, and, Paul, and a couple of other people. I, I became friendly with Paul in San Francisco. He's been on this sure. show a couple of times. And one of the things I regret the most is insisting in a conversation on the show with him that the protest movement didn't really end the Vietnam War. Uh, I, I felt I was a little disrespectful, uh, and he's since passed on. Yeah, uh, but let me but, let but me he, be let me be disrespectful but, to you. Yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> the the pro protesting it feels good. It's like recycling. Recycling feels good, but the fact is that the richest one percent produced ninety nine percent of the carbon emissions and the greenhouse gases and recycling. It's just a nice thing to do. It makes you feel good. The largest protests in the history of protesting were in 2003 in the run up to the war in Iraq. Globally, in New York City, around right. the world. Doesn't matter if, if we're going to war, we're going to war. Do you do you think taking to the streets works? You do. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely. Are, is there I a, is that, there an alternative to taking to the streets? You're a lawyer. Yeah, there. Well, there are a couple of uh, alternatives. You, you can, of course, sue to stop wars from starting. That has a 100 percent failure rate. And of course, in the current judicial climate, we have 150 percent failure rate. But you can't if you 
if you only protest, if there's nothing else that you're doing, if you don't agree that once you're finished protesting by going to the streets, you're going to do something else. And this comes to what happened when I was about to get out of college and I wanted to go to graduate school. And this was to me a huge moral dilemma. I was going to get married one week after uh, we graduated from Dickinson College together, Joanne, you know. And uh, named after Angie w- Dickinson, who was in that great movie. Who was in, who was in China Gate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is that not. why you picked Dickinson? Ab- absolutely not. Oh, okay. No, no. Um, but here's the thing. And we had long gotten over the ridiculous idea that you would get a, a deferment uh, if you were married. You know, that was never fair and always stupid. And then the, if you wanted to go to graduate school and become a lawyer, which I was already turned off by the law at that time, because lawyers, with the exception of the National Lawyers Guild, uh, didn't seem to care much about the war. And But you could get a deferment if you went to seminary. And I was incredibly torn about that because it didn't seem fair that just because I was going to go into the ministry, I could should somehow uh, be better treated than someone who was going to be a lawyer or somebody who was working in a factory. It seemed incredibly unfair. So I go to my army physical. I had one of those armbands that you just talked about, dripped in red dye to look like animal or person's blood. And uh, I got there. I I tried to be as aggressive as possible, you know, in a pacifistic kind of way. Uh, And I would yell at the sergeant, given the intro exam, you know, I'd say, raise my hand. I'm not going to answer this question. Why aren't you? I I am claiming my rights under the Ninth Amendment. I didn't even know what the Ninth Amendment was, but I wanted to do that to show how irritated I was. And then when I got to my army physical, the head doctor there listens to my heart and says, you know, uh, sir, you, you have a very serious heart condition. I said, uh, I, never, I, I didn't know that, which I didn't. And I said, what do I do about it? And he said, well, there's nothing to do about it. You simply need to watch it, which I remember my mother saying when I was crossing the interstate they built across from our house, watch, look both ways. Um, it just didn't sound right. And it was, and in fact, it was very serious. And as some of your listeners may know, uh, three weeks after I retired, I ended up in a hospital, multiple hospitals, because of the very same heart condition that finally caught up to me. At the time of that initial diagnosis, um, Joanne, again, had looked at medical records and she's a doctor she's She's a a doctor a real doctor doctor. a a, a medical doctor yeah well uh, some doctors are real even if you don't have mds right when am i talking about jill biden and um so it was very serious and i i had a life expectancy of about 40 but you had but you've always had people praying for you haven't you I think I have, yes, but we don't want to go into that conversation because we pretty much beat it like a dead horse that it is until um, I here's what I do think. Even if you have doubts about whether the war ended sooner, 
because of protests. And I do think there's considerable evidence that it did. But I understand how you can perhaps uh, having apologized for to Paul be, and now he's dead. Um, I don't expect a, an apology. I've already been through that near death experience. <laughs> but this is what I do think will happen. It is not going to be possible ever, ever to have conscription back in the United States. You will ne there will never be a draft ever. And that, in my judgment, will make it less likely, not more likely, that we go to war when we shouldn't go to war. I fought for amnesty. Uh, somebody in the chat room I know is a, a colleague of mine at, at um, during that whole effort. And the, the VFW and the other people in the military that would uh, debate me would frequently say, you know, if we grant an amnesty for those people who resisted the war, uh, we'll never be able to draft anybody again. And I would go, my heart said, you're damn right. You're damn right. And although Jimmy Carter didn't really amnesty everybody, it was a very complicated thing that you can read about on my book, Paid to Piss People Off, Volume 1. But um, Which has the, the Feldman the guarantee. Person, which has a Feldman guarantee. Um, by the way, if I write you under a pseudonym and say I read the book and I didn't like it, do I get my money back? Just a question. Um, I like the way you think. Here's the other thing. How about we go in on that together? That's a great idea. You can return your copy. <laughs> here's what we're going to do. But this is, and then when Jimmy Carter, one year after, well, it was two years, I guess, after he granted these pardons for certain categories of war resistors and um He's, he opposes returning draft registration. And then very, the very next year, in 1980, he decides he's in favor of draft registration, even though his opponent at the time, Ronald Reagan, was steadfastly against registering people for the draft. And there were, it was a wonderful set of opponents. There were people like Ron Paul, not Rand Paul, although Rand Paul Remind me to tell you who one good thing. Ron he Paul's did. the real doctor. Rand Paul's the, and Rand is dentist. the ophthalmologist. Oh, he's an ophthalmologist. Yeah, with that you have to. You have to go to school to be an ophthalmologist. But, uh, but like uh, the guy Assad in Syria is an ophthalmologist. I'm in yeah, El well, an know, ophthalmologist. I'm not, I'm not going to him. Yeah, but, but here's the thing about it. Um, and my, my good friend who, who just died uh, two months ago, uh, Congresswoman Patricia Schroeder from Colorado. Um, I mean, Carter went to her when he changed his mind and he said, you know, you know, Pat, I, I do want to register women and I'd like you to take that on. And she had Diego yeah, brain answered almost everything she was told to do. And she said something like, you know, I got into the uh, House of Representatives in order not to be a militarist, not to include half of the world's, uh, the country's population into the military I disapprove of in the first place. But he did it. He got it. And then, as we learned, what, about a year ago when I had that fellow who was an anarchist and one of the very few people who was actually prosecuted for failing to register for this current draft, um, there were only 19 people prosecuted 
once Ronald Reagan changed his mind also, and with people like Ed Meese, who was consulate to the president at the time, Jim Schlesinger, I think, was secretary of the Navy. They were talking about how they were going to select the places to bring lawsuits. And Rudy Giuliani, you know, before he was, you know, a lunatic, and that was, of course, he used, used to be America's mayor, but he used to be in a Justice Department, and he would make speeches where he would talk about all the prosecutions that were going to occur of the people who were foolish enough to fail to register. Hundreds of thousands of people failed to register. There's also a five-year penalty uh, for not telling the government when you move, that you don't give me address because if they don't have a current address, of course, they can't find you. Hundreds of thousands of other people in that capacity, 19 people, 18 of them turned themselves in, wrote letters to uh, the attorney general and said, uh, here I am. Here's my name. This is where I live. I'm not registering for the draft. One person was a Laotian refugee who I don't know much about, but it's, I think, most likely that he didn't even understand he had an obligation to register. So when you combine pardons from Jimmy Carter with a complete and abject failure to prosecute people for the current system, and I say current system because when I go to the post office to mail out some of those books paid to piss people off, I can still see the forms in the post office asking people register with selective service. If they're not going to prosecute and a president is going to, in the popular mind at least, uh, forget about the offenses of folks in the Vietnam period who you ain't going to ever bring conscription back. Conscription to me, aside from chattel slavery, is the worst, worst institution this country has ever created and i don't ever want to see it come back and there's no way to make it fair people even during the carter years they talked about making it fairer if you have one exemption let's talk about a medical exemption you've one of them you've just opened the floodgates for misuse and it's not just with donald trump's bone spurs a very good friend of mine who also uh it turned out to be a United Church of Christ minister, but he he was going for his pre-induction physical in California. And the guy in front of him was a, a heavy person, and uh, he was wearing big cowboy boots. He stands up on the scale, and he's overweight. The guy doing the weighing, probably this, a sergeant, said, uh, uh, sir, what, how stupid do you think I am? Take the boots off and get back on the scale. So he got, he got down, he took the boots off, put them up under his arm and got back on the scale. And the sergeant said, see, you didn't have to try to fool me. You're overweight anyway. <laughs> That's great. And isn't that, it's such a hard, I mean, it's, it's great and it's horrifying. We, we only have four minutes left. Okay, well. Let me, let me. Go ahead. We're talking with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. He's the author of Paid to Piss People Off. It's a trilogy published by Blue Cedar Press. Go buy this book. It has the Feldman Guarantee. 
I disagree with you about the draft, but that's for another time. And we've, sure. we've, we've already been we've already been through that. Sure. Uh, but I disagree with you. I think there should be a draft and not just because I hate my kids. Um, no. Hey, what do you think? I'm glad you said that. Because what do you think? There's a variation on military conscription called national service, which I also hate. And I used to debate people, Gene McCarthy, anti-war, get clean with Gene. He decided he was in favor of that. And I remember one uh, debate we had at the Yale Political Union once, which I think I won by 95% vote. But as he pointed out, it's Yale and these are college students. But when Jack Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, I have to say that strikes me more and more as bullshit. Because this, if you go in, to Boston and drive through Boston, which is a half hour from where I live, if you go into Southeast Washington, if you go into parts of, of Roxbury in, in Boston, if you go in New York, you drive from the center of Los Angeles to the LA airport, and you tell me that the people on the street there, literally lying on the street, or their children, who are sometimes with them, owe the government one moment of their time or one penny. Well, he wasn't. They don't have. He, 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 I think he was talking about the Peace Corps and food for peace and war. No. He, he, was mil- he, he was a it hawk. Was, but it, Yeah, but no. It, as soon as the government tells you what's good for the country, I get suspicious. In okay. other words, when they say, oh, yeah, well, you, you don't have to go in the military. You can go. You can do in the, you be in the Peace Corps. You can. Uh-uh. What about mandatory schooling? Oh, I'm in favor of mandatory What about vaccines? Schooling. I'm in favor of mandatory. I'm not an anarchist. What about vaccines? I think, I think vaccines can be required. I don't join my. Uh, what about paying taxes? Of course. So don't you think we have a civic responsibility to give up two years of our lives since our kids and grandkids are going to be living to be 125? Shouldn't they devote two (laughs) years of their lives to their country? Absolutely not. They can do that, but I'd like them to make sure that they're doing it voluntarily, that they feel that they have an obligation to work to do good because this country has been good to them. I, I disagree with you. Thousands to, of people to the in core, this country, David, they haven't, been, they haven't gotten one shred of goodness from this government. Well, I, there's no question that there's an underclass that always ends up being on the front lines. So I'm not going to argue with you on that. But when you describe, I met the great George McGovern, who I believe sure. was also a Methodist, was, he was a Methodist minister, correct? No, I don't think so. George was not, I don't believe. Oh, he's the son of a Methodist minister. I think he was the son of a minister. Uh, I met him a couple of times. He's my hero. And he said that he was a get. Now, I apologize because he's since passed and I don't want to put words in his mouth. Right. But I believe, I believe he said that looking back, the biggest mistake he made, and I apologize if I'm getting this wrong, was... Uh, pushing to end the draft. He said in a speech that I attended 
that by making everybody serve in the military, it forces all citizens to have a healthy distrust and mistrust of our military. The, th- the story you tell about the boots. Yep. If everybody saw how stupid people in the military, the military leadership is, they would say, I, I, I don't believe what you're yeah. telling me. Well, that's that. Here's my brief rebuttal to that. If it took that long for people to understand if I don't think that I don't know if George McGovern said that I've I mean, I used to talk to him occasionally about and the amnesty movement. But that's a hell of a price to pay. Hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese dead, 55,000 American women and men dead, another 50,000 who commit suicide when they come back from Vietnam. That's a hell of a price to pay so that somebody will wake up and go, you know, this government, they really are dope. No, that, you're missing, I, you're, you're, with all due respect, and when I say with all due respect. Well, you don't mean much. That's I don't okay. mean, but so just so you know, but so, I am okay. saying, I'm going through the motions of saying with all due respect, we're going to have fewer wars, if any, when people, middle class, upper middle class, white people have to send their kids off to fight losing wars, which we never seem to win. So I think I think we inoculate America from from fighting all these wars by making everyone have to fight it. I don't think this global war on terror would have lasted 20 years if more than one percent of our population was scarred by it. Yeah, well, I think we're just going to have to disagree. Okay. I'm going to do. I I think the best answer is for you to come back next week. Okay, I'll come. You know what I want to do next week? I want to tell you how we could end up making a really solid determination about how many people we have in our military, because you have to know how many people do we have under arms now? How many could you get? How many people are ready to serve? They're just not serving yet. And then, by the way, what are they going to be fighting for? That's a discussion you never, ever see on CNN, MSNBC, or Lord help us, the Fox News Channel. Eric Prince, Eric Prince and Blackwater, whatever he's calling it these days, has become more influential, more powerful. They have privatized our military because there's no draft. They've, they've, there are contractors now going off and fighting our wars for us with no oversight, no inspector general. We have our own Wagner group like Putin, and we don't even know where we're sending them and who's sending them. And that, I think, is the byproduct of getting rid of the draft. Eric Prince would not want to bring back the draft. It would be bad for business. I'll give you the last word. Yeah, it's a. Um, I, I enjoy the comments from uh, that I'm noticing because for some reason now my uh, uh, chat 
spot shows up at the bottom, so it, I can actually look at you and read at the same time. Um, can you chew Vietnam gum? Was, can you chew somebody gum? Said, somebody, somebody says Vietnam was a war crime. I think it was a war crime, and nobody's nobody's being prosecuted for it. And as far as what the wealthy, somebody was talking about the rich, what the rich do is they get their kids out. They go and see counselors. They go and see psychoanalysts. They go to see physicians. They find all kinds of obscure illnesses and diseases that they have or they otherwise game the system. We will never start to make America an equal country where we respect every person in every branch of the economic ladder by deciding to draft people in the hopes that maybe some rich kids will get drafted and they they'll learn something it's too it's too much of a price to pay it is my judgment i want to just end on praising rush limbaugh he got out of the draft in the most honorable way trump had the the bs the bone spurs yeah. Dick Cheney said I had other priorities. Yep. Rush Limbaugh, I had an anal cyst. Um, and, and, and he stuck with that. That was his story. Yeah. I couldn't serve in the military because I had an anal cyst. He's a hero in my <laughs> I'd rather go to Vietnam. I think it takes more courage to say I couldn't go to Vietnam because I had an anal cyst. Yeah. God bless you, Rush, down in hell. Down in hell, (laughs) Rush Limbaugh. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn is the author of Paid to Piss People Off. It is a trilogy. It's published by Blue Cedar Press. Go buy the book wherever fine books are sold or stolen. Go to Barnes & Noble. Go to BarryWLynn.com to buy it. Go to BlueCedarPress.com. You can even go to Amazon. In fact, do all your shopping on Amazon. (laughs) Thank you, Reverend. You're so welcome. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump.